Happy Palm Sunday, Sun Valley Church. It's a blessing to be together, isn't it? I rarely uh, quote Charles Darwin, and I don't think I've ever began a sermon with him, but today's a new day. So listen to this quote from Charles Darwin. Belief is the most, most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower animals. Belief is the most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower animals. What separates you from the animals is your ability to believe. So what if you don't believe? <laughs> I'd like to ask Darwin. Uh, does that put you in a different category? Maybe down with the lower animals, subhuman category. Mark, in his gospel, has laid the groundwork for establishing the identity of Jesus Christ in chapters one through five. If you have a Bible, I wanna encourage you to open to chapter six. That's where we're gonna be reading today and studying. But Mark has, has done a good job at laying the groundwork, preparing us to face a decision, an important decision, uh, about the identity of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to chapter six, he begins to ask his readers, you and me, uh, to make some choices. And especially as we move forward. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Would be Mark's question. He's presented Jesus as God, the solution to chaos, but now he asks you, the reader, to decide for yourself. You've heard the evidence, according to Mark, now, do you believe that Jesus is who he's claimed to be? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you embraced him as God? Do you view him as Mark is presenting him as the solution to chaos in your life? Well, listen to these verses in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read through the first six verses. If you follow along, this sermon will make more sense to you. He went from away from there, that is, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, be, no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Of course, we know that the hometown referred to here in this text is Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up from the time he was two years old and on. But what we, what we have here in front of us, uh, Mark reveals that even in Jesus' hometown, people didn't believe him. They didn't believe who he was. They wouldn't embrace him as, of course, God, much less a prophet. But he's asking us, he's using this story, Mark is, to see where your heart is. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? It's not a coincidence that this story here in Mark 6 follows the stories of Jesus' miracles. 
Mark has an objective here in his writing. He's not just babbling on like we would do in, in a high school history paper to try to convince the teacher we've thought of something. Marx actually has an objective here. He desires that he present Christ to you in such a way that demands a response. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his 12 disciples. Mark's asking you and me. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so we have this story right on the tail of, of all these other miraculous stories like Jesus calming the, the megastorm on the Sea of Galilee, like rescuing a demon-possessed man, like healing the woman who had been sick for 12 years, like raising Jairus' dead daughter back to life, not to mention healing the man with the withered hand, the leper, and others. So this comes right after that for the purpose of you having to make a decision about Christ. What's your verdict, Mark's going to ask. So thinking about this story here in Mark 6, of all the people in Israel, the ones who knew Jesus best should have been the first to believe in him, wouldn't you think? They knew who he was. They'd seen him grow up. They had witnessed this extraordinary character in this young man. I think they should have been quick to believe. But here we read that they didn't. Mark presents this this town, Nazareth, as the first really to reject Christ. We already know that the leaders rejected Christ, but Mark here wants you to realize that after presenting all that he has about Christ, Jesus' own hometown, his own people, his own family rejected him. Luke records that Jesus' prior visit, so this is Jesus' second visit back home after he left to begin his ministry, in his first visit back, Luke says that, that the townspeople tried to kill him because of what he said. That sounds like quite the homecoming. I'm not sure I would have returned. But Jesus did, only to receive this cool welcome. The unfortunate thing as we read through the, the Gospels, the unbelievable thing really, is that the vast majority of those who witnessed Jesus' miracles were amazed but not convinced. They were blown away but not persuaded on the point that Jesus used miracles for, which was to persuade people to believe in him, to follow him. This morning I want to look at how Mark reveals the danger of unbelief here to us. And then, and then the second point I want to point out to you is the benefit of unbelief. Now that sounds kind of odd, so you're going to have to stay awake until I get there. But there's actually a benefit to unbelief. But first, let's look at the danger of unbelief. We read earlier today that the Bible was written so that you might believe. Remember John 20, 31? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So the Bible was written, all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that you might believe, that I might believe in this one called Jesus Christ. But what we see here in the first couple verses of chapter 6 is that unbelief ignores the obvious. Unbelief ignores the obvious. You see the two things that astonish the people of Nazareth here? What were they in the first two verses? The thing that astonished them. It says mighty works, the mighty works of Jesus astonished them. 
and the wisdom of his teaching astonished them. Keep in mind, he's a local boy. (laughs) You might be astonished as well. But either of these two things, his mighty works or his wisdom of teaching, should have been sufficient to convince them of, of his true identity. But their unbelief hardened their hearts towards him. And so we see here the, the danger of unbelief. Unbelief can actually harden your heart. Jesus' teaching and wisdom proved his identity because no one else has ever taught as Jesus did. But these folks in Nazareth remained resistant, rejected him really. Jesus provided everything they needed to be persuaded that he was God in the flesh, things like miracles, teaching, wisdom, etc., the things they're, very, they're astonished with. But they remained in unbelief. They refused to believe. The response of these folks in Nazareth was the typical response of most of Israel in Jesus' day. The priests, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders couldn't deny that Jesus was doing miraculous things, couldn't deny that he was a powerful teacher, and yet, instead of embracing him, they rejected him. It seemed like at every stop we see this. This is what unbelief still does today. We have all this evidence of who Christ is, uh, uh, the, the God of heaven, and yet, it's uncommon to find somebody who truly, really embraces Jesus Christ as he is presented. Jesus said this in John 10, Verse 37 and 38, if I am not doing the works of my father, he's speaking to a crowd who wouldn't embrace him, who wouldn't believe him. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, that is the works, that miraculous things that I'm doing, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and at least respond to the works that I've done that prove that I'm God. If you don't believe what I'm saying, who else have you seen lately that can raise people from the dead? Is what Jesus is asking. At least believe the works. Can your hearts be so hard as not believe the obvious? But it seems that unbelief ignores the obvious. This is not a mystery though on why it happens. Paul says this, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. in their case, that is the case of those who don't believe, the God of this world, who's that Satan, has blinded the minds, that's a small g, keep in mind, it's not the God of the universe, it's the God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What keeps them from seeing who Jesus is? unbelief, according to Paul, according to Jesus. Unbelief has dogged mankind since the Garden of Eden, hasn't it? This is what Adam and Eve demonstrated when they took the fruit, unbelief. They didn't believe that God could be their satisfaction. They didn't believe that God could be all that he promised to be to them. And so they decided to believe a snake. Instead, the lie that that their rebellion could satisfy them. And Satan is still using that same plan. And people are still biting, even today. Unbelief is a sin that we need to be wary of, Sun Valley Church. 
Unbelief is so dangerous because it makes people ignore the obvious. <laughs> he began to teach in the synagogue, and many heard him were astonished. Who is this man to do such great things? How was he able to teach with such depth and wisdom? And yet they ignored the obvious. He's God. That's how he can do these things. Plain evidence is denied because of unbelief. Spiritual blindness is the result of unbelief, according to Paul, that I just read for you. Unbelief is that sin that sends people to hell. Jesus said, listen to this, John 8, 24. Jesus speaking, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So people reject God when he's in plain sight, evidently. The Psalms are full of statements about how the creation speaks of God's existence and his loving character. From cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, the Bible re reveals God to us. Yet people can go out on a starry night and not be phased by the obvious. They come up with excuses or explanations for such miraculous demonstrations. Belief in Jesus Christ has always had similar results as this. If one would take the four Gospels at face value, an honest person would be convinced of his identity. And yet, critics, <laughs> year in and year out, continue to explain away all the miracles of Christ, the character of Christ, simply by ignoring the obvious claiming it's legend or fairy tale. But the New Testament Gospels attempt to reveal Jesus as only one possible option, the God of the universe. But instead of believing, people around us, maybe even people here, make up ridiculous alternatives to explain away what's obvious. Christians, that would be quote-unquote Christians, similarly claim to embrace Jesus as Lord, God of heaven, but are quick to dismiss his commands. In case we're, we're quick to point the finger and, and say, what is wrong with those people of Nazareth? Let's look inward for a second. Do we obey the commands of the one we claim is Lord, the God of the universe? The commands of Jesus recorded in the New Testament are regularly dismissed by people who claim that they believe that he is Lord. That's called unbelief. What do you think Jesus meant when he commanded us to love one another? Smile in the lobby? <laughs> um, what did he mean when he proclaimed to be the God of heaven that and in order to follow him, his followers must deny themselves, take up their cross, and daily, detail-wise, follow him. If anyone claims to be in Christ, the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 6, they must walk as Jesus did. If Jesus is Lord, his commands are not optional. When Jesus says... You must deny yourself. You must love him more than you love your family. You must give sacrificially. 
we don't have an option if we say we believe that Jesus is God. To hear those things and, and not do what he commands is unbelief. What else could it be? The danger of unbelief is that it ignores the obvious. Secondly, unbelief grows in the soil of familiarity. Unbelief grows in the soil of familiarity. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> Look at the familiarity they had with Jesus. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are, are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. That word took offense is actually scandalized. The, the word Mark used was scandalized. They were scandalized by him. It means to cause to stumble, to, to stumble into a snare. Their resentment of Jesus was obvious. They were scandalized. In verse 2, look at, look at the wording in verse 2 to prove to you that they were offended, scandalized. It says, where did this man, that's the emphasis of that sentence, by the way. Mark put that word at the front of the sentence, which is what Greek writers did to emphasize something instead of underlining or italicized. They threw the word to the front of the sentence. This man, in other words, this man, get these things? This guy? Who are you trying to kid? This is the, this is the carpenter. These are his brothers. We married his sisters. He's not God. Is Mark's intended emphasis. Of course, we know from Isaiah 8.18 that, that Jesus would be of stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. It was prophesied that this, in fact, would be their response. Jesus responded by stating this, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown with his own family. Familiarity breeds contempt. So unbelief grows in the soil of familiarity. The Nazarene's familiarity with Jesus actually blinded them to the truth. Jesus couldn't possibly be what he claimed to be because they really knew who he was. We really know this kid. This is the guy that used to run around playing marbles in the street. He's one of the local boys. He worked as a builder, as his brothers do now. His sister married the local boys. Why would you submit yourself to this local kid? Kind of like going to a doctor that you used to babysit. Like, this, I have some stories here. I was a youth pastor and a soccer coach. In January, I had my legs shaved by one of my ex-soccer players for a surgery. And his name's Bucky, and I said, Bucky, what are you doing? And he goes, I went to school. And he said, if it makes you feel any better, this is the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing, <laughs> shaving your legs. It gets worse. One of the kids in our youth group is now my urologist. <laughs> Watch it. 
watch it, I tell him. Familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? In Aesop's fables, he tells a story of a fox who had never seen a lion. Remember that story? When he first met the king of the beasts, the fox was nearly frightened to death, shaking, shaking, could hardly breathe. At their second meeting, the fox was not frightened quite as much. By the third meeting, he was chatting it up with the lion. And this is how Aesop concluded the fable. And so it is that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem harmless. Philip Brooks, the Bible commentator, said it best. He said, familiarity breeds contempt only with contemptible things or among contemptible people. So who's the contemptible one in this story? Like the tourist who was visiting an art gallery, after hurrying through the displays, he walked past the guard on the way out and says, nothing really interesting struck me today. And the guard wisely said, sir, the art's not on trial here, the visitors are. <laughs> so when they call Jesus in verse three, look at verse three with me. Isn't this the son of Mary? Jewish history would help be helpful here. Jewish culture would be helpful here to understand exactly what was being said. They weren't asking whether or not this was Mary's son. They were digging at him. The way you referred to people in Jesus' day was by your father's name, not your mother's. And so this was a dig at the legitimacy of his conception and birth. Uh, hey, isn't your mom uh, known for a little bit of, you know, this kind of the question that's being asked. So Sun Valley Church in, in our day, today, do we need to beware of the unbelief of familiarity? Think about it. Think about where you're sitting. Growing up in church or being in church every week for a long time has the potential of building spiritual calluses. Oh yeah, I've heard that. I've read that before. We've prayed this before. That song, I'm getting old, that's getting old. We need to guard against that by checking our heart daily. What is your expectation when you come to church? Uh, an enthusiasm for it to get over? Is that the expectation? What do you expect from the worship service? Do you expect God to meet with you here? Do you expect God to do a work in your heart here? Is this your anticipation that you're meeting with God? That you're experiencing the primary means of grace in the preaching of his word? What is your expectation? C could you be accused of being too familiar? We have to be careful of this. A Sunday school teacher, I'm sure most of you have heard this before, but a Sunday school teacher asked his fifth graders, uh, what is brown furry, lives in trees and gathers acorns? And the little boy in the class goes, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> Familiarity dulls the mind, calluses the heart. Modern Christianity can be too familiar with Jesus. 
we know everything about him. We've heard all the stories. We can answer all the Bible quest, trivia questions. We sit through church sun, Sunday seminars thinking to ourselves what I've just said. Yeah, I've heard that before. And so our minds drift to more interesting things like sporting events, hobbies, what's for lunch, our investments or whatever's on Facebook and Instagram. This is the soil of familiarity. This is where unbelief grows well. I'm talking about here, at Sun Valley Church. This is where our faith drifts towards the rocks of shipwreck. And what's the solution? A renewed vision of Christ is the solution. A daily renewed vision of Christ Jesus. Jesus can even solve the chaos of unbelief growing out of familiarity, which is a danger to every person in the room. Knowing Jesus intimately is different than being too familiar with Jesus. There's a difference between calling Jesus my friend and Jesus my buddy. So, how do we move forward besides pleading with God for a renewed, fresh vision of Christ? Well, we stop ignoring the obvious. He is Lord, the King of the universe. The one we worship, the one we know so well, is the God of heaven, our creator. Stop being bored with the familiar. No matter how many times you've seen a lion, it's always impressive, isn't it? Plead with God for renewed passion for your Savior. Ask God to reveal himself to you in fresh, word, fresh ways as you come through that door every week. And in your personal Bible study, plead with God to reveal himself to you in the pages of Scripture. Don't just read it to get through the reading of the day. Pick up your Bible and read it again with the eyes of a child. Read a good book like The Glory of Christ by John Owen or Desiring God by John Piper or When I Don't Desire God by John Piper also or The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer or go out there and blindly pick one of those Puritan paperbacks off the, ch the church bookshelf and it will stir your soul to its deepest place. Puritans have a way of penetrating the heart like nobody. Friends, our natural sinful tendency is to drift away from the dock. We need to tether ourselves securely to the dock of Christ daily for fear of unbelief. Next, fear is the chief of sins. I'm fear. Uh, unbelief is the chief of sins. It says in verse 5 that Jesus could do no mighty works there. That seems strange. Why? Why could Jesus do no mighty works? Well, it's because of unbelief. It's the chief of sins. Jesus, it says, marveled at their unbelief. Like, you're kidding me. Two times in the Gospels, we read that Jesus marveled at something. Once, 
is here in Mark 6, 6, and another in Luke 7, 9. One is, uh, he marveled at unbelief, and in Luke 7, 9, he marveled at the belief of a Roman centurion. The exact opposites, he marveled. The power of unbelief is staggering to consider. Jesus said this in John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, Jesus could do no mighty works in Nazareth, not because unbelief is stronger than Jesus, but because they would not come to him for healing. <laughs> they just refused to come. They were condemned already. What a judgment. Lord, save us. <clears throat> Just to be doctrinally accurate, for those of you who are digging in a bit with me here, Jesus can and does overcome the sin of unbelief on a daily basis. That's why you're sitting here. <laughs> right? But it remains the only sin that condemns. Did you hear me? Unbelief remains the only sin that condemns. It is the chief of sin. It's the only sin that condemns to hell. You say, what about murder? Well, I know a few murderers that are going to be in heaven. What about adultery? That's a big one. Well, I think there's a few adulter adulterers that are going to be in heaven. What other one you got? How about the person who doesn't believe? Will they be in heaven? Nope. Unbelief is the chief of sins. That doesn't mean God can't spare an unbeliever. Like I said, you're sitting here. He does all the time. But it remains the only sin that condemns to hell. Unbelief causes us who claim to follow Jesus to ignore the commands of Scripture. Unbelief causes us to deceive ourselves into believing that all is okay between us and God, even while we sin. Unbelief is what causes us to embrace our sins instead of embracing our Savior. We don't really believe that Jesus is God's, or we would submit ourselves fully to Him, fully. We don't really believe that Jesus is sufficient for us, or we'd follow and obey every command. How can He possibly meet every need of mine, we say to ourselves? And so in our own worldly influence wisdom, we chase things that the world promises will satisfy instead of chasing Christ who promises the same thing to satisfy. So whose promises are you going to believe? Finally, let's look at verse 6. The blessing of unbelief or the benefit of unbelief. Choose any word you want there. Look at verse 6. After Jesus marveled because of their unbelief, what did he do? And he went among the villages teaching. He left that unbelieving Nazareth and took his message elsewhere. <laughs> because Nazareth refused to believe, the surrounding villages heard the gospel. So Jesus moves on from Nazareth to a more receptive area. The condemnation remained on the unbelieving Nazareth people, 
but the hope and light of the gospel spread to the surrounding villages. Secondly, it spreads to the nations. The, this point, I think, is going to move beyond Mark 6, verse 6, but it's an intended trajectory of the gospel. The, the story of Nazareth's rejection ultimately leads to you and me believing, sitting here, being blessed by God and his gospel. How so? This is the amazing plan of God for the nations. It's, it's mind-boggling, really. But Paul in Romans chapter 11 tells us that Israel's hardening, Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was to the benefit of the Gentiles. We being Gentiles. As disturbing as the Jewish rejection of Jesus as their Messiah is, it has turned out to a boon for us in this room who are not Jewish. Listen to Romans 11, verses 11 and 12. So I ask, Paul writing, did they stumble, that is the Jews, did the Jews stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, listen to God's plan, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass, Israel's trespass, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, their failure, our riches, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then jump down to verse 25, 11.25. Romans 11.25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, the mystery of the gospel coming to the Gentiles. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the rejection of Christ by the people of God, the Jewish people of God, results in this, in this um, container that's filling with the souls of Gentiles. Pretty impressive. You remember the parable of the empty banquet in Luke 14? Jesus said, I, I've prepared this banquet and I've invited my people and no one shows up. Kind of upsets the Lord of the banquet and so he said, tells his servants to go everywhere you can, find anybody you possibly can that's available and bring them in. That story is for us. It's the stories of, of Israel's rejection and Jewish inclusion. God invited the people of Israel to a feast, but they weren't interested. So he went to the Gentiles. God has turned his attention away from the Jewish nation for a, for a season until the full measure of Gentiles comes in. Then after that full measure of Gentiles entered into the family of God, God will once again turn his attention back to his people and embrace them and they will come running. They will be fully jealous <laughs> and they'll come and be saved along with us. But now during this time, this, this, this time frame of, of uh, human history, Jesus Christ has embraced the Gentiles. Aren't you happy that we're included? 
Jesus went to other villages. The apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles because of unbelieving Jews. Israel's unbelief has turned into a blessing for us. So what should be our response to the mercy of God towards Gentiles? What should be your response to the mercy of God towards you? Paul explains it in Romans 11, how God grafted Gentiles into his family because of the rejection of the Jews and explains to us the mercy of God and not to take it for granted in Romans 11. The very next chapter, Paul says, now this is how you respond to this mercy. Let me read it for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of God's unbelievable mercy, to do this. Present your bodies. He's talking to Gentile Christians. He's talking to you and me, Paul is here. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Live every day to make much of Christ, is what Paul is saying. This is your response to the mercy of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is his good, acceptable, and perfect will. So how do we respond to this goodness and grace and mercy shown to us by Jesus Christ? We offer our lives to him, and you say, what next, Lord? Live for Christ every moment of every day. Make much of Jesus at home, at work, at church, Everywhere you breathe, make much of Christ. You're a living sacrifice. Friends, the antidote for unbelief is a full embrace of Jesus and all that he is, the Lord of heaven, the master of your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we see this sad story in Mark 1 through 6 and are perplexed by the unbelief of, of these Nazarenes. We're confused by how easy it is for them to um, reject you. And yet we realize the danger is ours as well. We, we see much of Jesus at this church. We hear his words preached. We, we hear his apostles taught. We're familiar with Christ. Lord, help us guard against familiarity, but take us deeper into intimacy. Help us not be believing unbelievers. Help us to be those who live moment by moment enraptured by our Savior, the Lion of Judah, the King of our souls. Help us make much of him today, starting today, right now. And for the rest of our lives, Lord, help us to be committed to faithfully walk with him, to make much of him on every occasion, because he is the only one worth making much of. We pray this in his name, amen.